0: The Paul Leslie Hour. Helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Now on the Paul Leslie Hour... I'm pleased and honored to welcome Red Aikens, a man who has had great success both as a major recording artist, but also his prolific career as a hit songwriter. In fact, he's celebrating 25 years of his successful creative work, and now Red Akins is being inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. So his name is going to be right alongside Willie Nelson, Bobby Braddock, and the best songwriters in country music. He's had thirty-one number one hits, forty BMI awards. His songs have been recorded by many top recording artists, recently John Party, also Blake Shelton, Justin Moore, Thomas Rhett, Brooks and Dunn, Billy Currington, Aaron Lewis, Josh Turner, and believe me, there's more. In addition, Red Akins has released six studio albums. He tours a good bit, but most of all, we could say that the songs of Red Akins are here to say. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure.
1: Thank you, buddy. I've, I'm honored to be on
0: with you, and uh, thanks for the introduction. Oh, my pleasure. So how has your day been? Has it been a busy day? <laughs> well,
1: I just it's a normal day for me. I just went and wrote a song, is what I do pretty much uh, five days a week. And I um, actually wrote with Matt Dragstrom today and uh, one of the members of Old Dominion, Brad Tersey. Brad's an excellent writer, both of them are. And the cool thing about Brad is, uh, you know, he writes songs for his own band, but he's also cool with trying to write songs for other people, too. And so it's a, it was a it was kind of a, a good mix today.
0: So you approach the writing, it's, it, it's almost like, Clocking in at the office, you've got to stay at it yes, day sir. after day.
1: <laughs> it's like going to the gym. A lot of times, you know, it's like uh, I wish that I had a brain like Bob Dylan, you know, or Paul McCartney, and and uh, I could just write when I was inspired. But uh, I kind of I work at it. Like I said, it's like going to, going to the uh, gym. I, I keep my brain exercised. I guess if I was a recording artist still, I probably wouldn't write as 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 much as I do. But um, it's kind of like going fishing, and and uh, instead of using one rod and reel, I got ten hanging out the boat. You know, so you just never know what day that uh, a great idea is gonna gonna hit you, or maybe you don't have a great idea, but the guy you're co-writing with does. You just never know what's gonna happen. From day to day, so I try not to let too many days go by and, and miss those opportunities.
0: <laughs> uh, believe it or not, I mean, I, I I'm not a songwriter, but I haven't recorded an interview in quite some time now, and I have this feeling of being a little rusty.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, Merle Haggard. I uh, I got to hang out with Merle Haggard one time wow. in 1995 in his hotel room. And he told me this was the first show he'd played in a while. And he said, it's like muscle memory. He said, you know, once you, I think he said something about 50 to 75 hours, if you haven't, if you haven't done something, your, your muscle memory has to kind of remember, <laughs> get back, get back in the groove a little bit. So if Merle says it, then it's, it's got to be true, you know, so, uh, I try to keep it active. I went on my first vacation in 10 years. I was gone for a month last month. I have never taken that much time off of songwriting. And I literally did not listen to the radio the entire time. Wow. Yeah. And it was, uh, for the first couple of weeks, it was kind of refreshing. And, but then about the second couple of weeks, I started to get a little antsy and felt like I was non-existent in the music community anymore. So I was kind of ready to get back home, but, uh, that's the first time I've ever really just got really tried to just get away from it. And I think it I think it helps some, but I do I have felt a little rusty over the last couple of weeks getting back into it. So it'll be a while before I take off again. And you were out west. I was. I went all over like Montana and Wyoming, and Colorado, and then went to Hawaii actually for a songwriter's trip. We wrote a couple of songs and did some shows out there. So I, I was gone for for a while, and I love it out there. But I'm glad to be back in Nashville.
0: Rhett, what has always been the purpose of the art you create, the writing that you create?
1: Man, for me, I just want to, I've just always wanted to make someone else feel what I felt the first time I heard Hank Williams sing or Frank Sinatra or the Rolling Stones. Or you Just name me. I, I love all genres of music. I mean, I mainly write country music, but... um there's not there's not a genre that I don't love and and I just there's nothing like music that it, that makes you cry makes you laugh inspires you and I just think back to when I was a kid and a teenager and hearing a song and going wow like how did that guy who grew up in England or wherever he grew up so far away from me make me feel that way and I've I've always I've never approached it from a money standpoint or an award standpoint I've always approached it as I just want to make somebody feel what what I felt when I first heard something. And so that that's really where I approach it from.
0: Well, what a great answer and, and how satisfying it must be to know that you have accomplished that goal, because I know your songs have affected a lot of people.
1: I hope so, man. If, I will say that I do get a little bit of, I do get to see it in action a lot, I think more than a lot of songwriters, because I still play a lot of shows. I don't really tour, but I've already played four shows with my son, Thomas Rhett, this year. I'm about to go on the road with Luke Bryan for two weeks and open the show for him. And so I think most songwriters, they know their songs are doing well because they can read the chart. And they go, oh, I'm at number 10 or I'm at number 5. And so they know that their song is working, but they don't actually get to go out and see it working. They don't get to go to Iowa or Montana or Maine and see 20,000 people sing your lyrics back to you. And I think I thank God that I'm still able to perform and and go out with people that draw big crowds and and get to sing my song and don't even really have to sing the whole thing because they're singing it back to me. So that's really a little bit, you get more validation knowing that, hey, you know, I I knew it was working because they told me it was, but I really got to see it tonight,
0: you know? (laughs) Well, I think one of your accomplishments would have to be, you know, at the beginning, I eventually I stopped listing recording artists who have recorded your stuff. You know, so many, so many different acts. When you look at your work, it's a lot. I mean, it's it's a, a lot of songs, a lot of cuts. Yeah, is it surreal to think about all of the many singers that have cut your work?
1: It is. I'm more proud of that than anything. I'm, I'm really. I was talking to some buddies the other day and going, man, when we look back on what we've done, look at it, it wasn't just one or two artists that we latched on to. It was like, it, it was like, I think you said I've had like 40 BMI awards. I think out of those 40 awards, 20 it was 25 different artists. I've had I've had more on Thomas Ratt, obviously, because I'm his dad. You know, I'm written a lot more with him, but um, the majority of our songs. Worked out by very different and diverse people. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of that, 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 that many artists out there took a liking to our songs. And it wasn't just, you know, one or two that, that liked what, what I did, but it was, uh, and, it, and I'm talking about from across the board from like extremely country artists to, to more pop oriented artists. It was like, there, there really wasn't a category. It was just like, we wrote a song that happened to fit what Blake likes, and also wrote a song that happened to fit what Thomas Rhett likes, or Dan and Shay, or or Joe Nichols, or Josh Turner. I mean, I just got a Trace Atkins cut. It just came out this week, and so I'm really proud of the fact that our songs have have uh, had a had a wide pattern.
0: Oh yeah, I think that's a good description. Wide, wide in terms of of the different types of stuff. One of my favorite things to do is I'll take a certain writer and I'll just line up different people doing them and just listen, you know, here's a totally different style of singer, same writer, you know. That's always interesting to me.
1: Yeah, that is cool, and there's nothing you can really plan for. I mean, I've tried many times to write a song for a particular artist, like I'm going to try to write this for Jason Aldean, and most of the time it doesn't work. I feel like that they almost know that you tried too hard to write something they've already done. And I think they're more attracted to your song when it's something that's different. They're like, Hey, I wouldn't have expected Rhett to send me that, you know, I expect him to send what my other albums sound like, but this was like boys around here for Blake Shelton. I I was just positive that nobody on earth would ever record that. And of all people, Blake loved it, you know? And so, um, that's that, that. I think I think it, you have more. I've had more success when I really don't try to write for anybody. I just try to write what what we wrote in the room that day, and hopefully somebody likes it. And so that's kind of the way I approach it most of the time.
0: That's really interesting. You know, I do think people like the curveballs. Uh, it kind of makes me think about you know when was the last time you heard a country song with mariachi? <laughs> mariachi horns in it
1: yeah john i guess you're are you alluding to uh tequila a little
0: time yes sir
1: <laughs> yeah 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 we wrote that at john party's mom's house in california up in the attic i mean we were like three we were like three high school teenagers forming a band it was myself and john and luke laird and and we wrote the song and john just blurted out he's like man this this feels like it's got it i mean we're singing about tequila and And it's got kind of that South Texas, George Strait feel. And, man, wouldn't it be cool if if we had some horns on this thing, you know? And so uh, he went out and did it. And, I mean, to me, it's just so cool. Because you're not, you're expecting to hear a guitar lick or a fiddle or a steel lick. But you're not expecting to hear a true mariachi band. And I just think that it's just, it's just like, I think people get tired of the same food all the time. You know, so let's put a little salt, let's put a little little hot sauce on this thing and so uh, I think anytime you can be you can be
0: different it's great would you be able to put a number how many total songs you've written
1: yeah I think I could yeah well I would say I didn't start writing like for other people until about 2007 up until that time I only wrote for myself so I didn't write near as many songs but I would say from 2007 until now, I've written at least 100 to 150 songs a year. So how many years is that? 13, 14 years? So at 10 years, that's 1,500. I would say 1,700, something like that.
0: Wow. Um,
1: And maybe that's overkill. I mean, a lot of them are terrible. A lot of them will never be heard. But then I I feel like I have some gems in that batch of songs that are better than the songs that that ever came out. And for whatever reason the right person didn't hear it or they got lost in the shuffle, who knows, but um, I do think I have, sometimes I feel like, man, if somebody would just cut that one, you know, that would be the Grammy winner right there. I don't know if it's the right or wrong approach, but it's kind of like fishing with 10 different fishing poles, and i just throw them all out there. Hopefully something bites on something, but yeah, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of, a lot of songs in my catalog that are unheard.
0: Hmm. What would you say has been the secret of the success that you've had? Not quitting. Hmm.
1: Because I should have quit a thousand times. Based on my money situation and and, uh, success at certain times in my life, I should have moved back to Georgia. But I couldn't do it because I love country music too much to quit. There's no way that I could have moved home and listen to the radio, and going, dang it! I know I could have written that song with those two dudes if I hadn't moved. Like, I just couldn't. I, I just, as bad as country music wasn't wasn't we weren't jiving at certain times. I just couldn't quit. I think I get a lot of that mentality from the way I was raised, and, the, and for sure from growing up playing football in Austin, Georgia. We just we practiced like we we're, were in the Marine Corps, and there was a never quit always fight to the last second. And I just have that mentality in me, even though my, my brain sometimes is like, boy, you're just chasing. This is a wild goose chase. I mean, this just ain't working. And if I'd have quit, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. <laughs> and so I don't think my, my secret is not huge amounts of talent. I mean, I'm talented, but I'm not Eddie Van Halen. I'm talented. I'm not Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I'm not that talented. But I'm talent. I've got just enough talent, but I have more drive and determination than anything. I just love music, period. And I just can't. I can't imagine myself not doing this. And I hope I can do it like Willie. You know, I hope I can do it that long like Mick Jagger. I hope I can do this till I'm 80 years old or longer. But um, my success is 100. percent Couldn't. I just can't quit. Like I, the the drive. That that's my that's my biggest
0: talent is not quitting. Well, this persistence that you speak of and this work, 1,700, you're rounding the plate towards 2,000 songs, it's paid off. You're now going to be inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is, for people who love country songs, this is the highest honor you can have. How does that feel?
1: Well, when they called me, well, first of all, I was just shocked that I was on the list to even be nominated. I just got an email one day, and it was like, hey, you're nominated for uh, Hall of Fame. And I was like, well, this is as far as this will go. I mean, I was nominated, I think, with 12 other people. And I was like, no way I'm going to get in with this person in there. And then a few months later, I got the call from Mark Ford at the Hall of Fame, and he said, you're the newest member of the Hall of Fame. And I mean, I, literally, I was driving at the time, and I had to pull over on the side of the interstate. Uh, that's how it hit me. And... I mean, you, you got a club that Hank Williams is in and, and Red Belly and Dean Dillon, Johnny and Waylon and Willie and Hank Jr. I mean, it's like these are the people that made me want to sing, and they want me to be in their club. Like, I mean, seriously, Hank Williams, Hank Jr., Merle Haggard, Waylon, Hank Jr., I mean, those were the dudes. Charlie Daniels, those were my guys when I was, you know, 12 to 18 years old, my formative years of loving music, and those were my people and and I can't believe that I'm in the same club with those dudes. I'm extremely honored and blessed to be in that that club.
0: Well, congratulations, sir. Thank you. Much deserved. You mentioned so many great songwriters here. Dean Dillon already, we've mentioned Willie Nelson, Roe Haggard, Hank Williams. Who would you say if you could name, has been your greatest influence as a songwriter?
1: Well, I don't think it would all be country. Beatles, The Stones, Hank Jr., Dean Dillon. D- I mean, Dean Dillon just wrote so many freaking George Strait songs that I just idolize. Hank Cochran, I mean, Hank and, Hank and Dean wrote so, from Vern Gosdin to Keith Whitley to George Strait. To George Jones, I mean, it's just like, I mean, they wrote the freaking book. I couldn't, I can't name just a few. There's just <laughs> so I many, I mean, Lead Belly, Muddy Waters, Bob Dylan, and just all the, you know, our Gershwin. I mean, it's like, there's so many people, cause I love just so many genres of, I love, I love all genres of music. And so there's not somebody from every genre out there. I mean, run DMC. LL Cool J. I mean, I grew up on it all. All of those people inspired me to write songs. And and I think because of that, I've gotten to write with so many different people. I mean, I've written with Steven Tyler. I've written with Nelly. I've written with T-Pain. I've written with Charlie Daniels. Like, there's not a genre of music that I've don't like something about. doesn't mean I like the whole genre as a whole, but there's songs within every single genre that I just love. It doesn't matter if it's rap, blues, country, big bands. When I got inspired to write a song last year by Cole Porter because I love watching old movies. And I was watching a movie called High Society with Frank Sinatra and Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby. And, and, Bing and Louis sang a song called uh, Now You Has Jazz, It was written by Cole Porter, and that inspired me to write a song this year that I wrote completely by myself called That's Country Music. And it was, uh, Cole was describing what he thought jazz music was, and I'm describing what I think country music is. And so I was inspired by him to write a country song, and he didn't write anything close to country, you know, so it comes from, it comes from everywhere.
0: Man, that's, that's so interesting, and it is the perfect setup for this. We've been talking about a lot of outside-the-box kind of stuff so far. I got this email, and it's a listener submission, and I was going to read this question, and it's, it's interesting because we've mentioned Sinatra a few times here. It's almost like this guy is on, is on the wavelength with us here. He says, so, mm-hmm. Mr. Akins, here is a question. What song that you have written would you think would be most suitable for Mr. Frank Sinatra, <laughs> John of Gold? Not many. <laughs> of... What's that? Not
1: many, probably, <laughs> especially melody-wise. But maybe maybe lyrically, there's, there's something that, that he could sing. And I'll tell you what's funny is I came up with this off the top of my head the other night. I was playing a songwriter show. And I, I like I imitate people all the time, but um, for some reason I, I I came up with a character called Hank Sinatra and Frank Williams, <laughs> and um so I started singing songs like if if you're Frank if you're Frank Williams you would sing a Hank Williams song in a Frank Sinatra voice, and it actually works. And I I sang uh, I'm so lonesome I could cry, and I was like yeah, that lonesome ripple will he sounds too blue to fly. I mean, so country songs can work, you know, in a big, in a big band setting. And so can Frank's songs work in a, in a, in a country setting. It's just this little character I'm, I made up. I mean, I'd really have to go back and just think about some songs that I've written that, that would work and that, that Frank could sing them. But that's an interesting question. Those those guys that wrote the big band stuff were just geniuses. I mean, they're just fantastic musicians, jazz musicians, big band musicians, and the lyrics. A lot of the lyrics are cute, you know, but they're very geniusly written. Like "Accentuate the Positive" or "Chattanooga Choo Choo" or any of those little songs. They sound like they sound like they just go by and they don't mean anything. But those guys had some real genius in all in all those th- songs.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, You're absolutely right. And it's it's interesting. So
1: when they string words together, you know, it's like you don't realize it when it goes by. But when you go back and listen to it, you're like, oh, I didn't realize how many times they they rhymed the word blue in that one little sentence. You know, it just goes by in passing. But when you look at it, they go like every line, like, just flows into the next one. Or they use the same consonants. They use the letter B, you know. Three times in a row, or something, and it just—and you don't realize it as a listener until you really study it how much that made the song better.
0: Very interesting. Who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe Frank would have done something like Carolina Line.
1: Yeah, he might have. <laughs> if I can remember the lyrics, I try to sing it like Frank. <laughs> I wrote that song in like '92. Yeah, I would say, yeah, there's, there's got to be something something he could sing, but he's one of my heroes. Even though Frank didn't write any songs, he wrote them in a way by his voice. Like, somebody else wrote the song, but Frank wrote it by the way he sang it and the way he phrased it, you know? So, he's he's like, he's like all-time best, but, and so, but so did Elvis, you know? And, and uh, so did Elton John. And, and Merle Hagner just had a way, too. I mean, Merle was just his lyrics on the surface seem extremely common man, very simple. But when you go back and really study it, you're like, oh, I see, like, you know, he'll be like, uh, I'm tired of this dirty old sidewalk. Think I'll walk off my steady job today. So he used walk twice, you know, in the same line. Or he'll go, uh, and you can keep your retirement and your so called. Social Security. So he did so twice. You know what I mean? And the average listener, I think, doesn't catch that. But they, but there's a reason why they love that song. Is because really little catchy, subtle things in there.
0: What would you say is the best way to get ideas?
1: You got to keep your antenna up at all times. You observe people. You listen to people. Like I listen to. Kind of, I, I can be sitting in an airport and I'm eavesdropping on the people sitting behind me. Just trying to catch something they said. Maybe you see something on a billboard. Maybe you see something in a magazine. I mean, Honeybee was, writ- was written for Blake Shelton because I totally misread someone's name in a ma- magazine article. The guy's last name was Huckabee in the magazine article, and I misread it. it as Huckleberry was turned into Honeysuckle, which turned into honeybee, And so that-, that song would have never been written without that magazine laying on that table. It's not something I had in my head preconceived or anything, and so it's just, uh, I remember one guy, we were listening to George Strait, and he goes, man, that makes me want to, listening to George Strait makes me want to ride a dirt road, and um I guess that was just in my subconscious, and next time I wrote with Luke Laird, I said, I got this idea called, makes me want to ride a dirt road, and then it morphed into, makes me want to take a back road for Rodney Atkins, and so, it was just based off something somebody said, and we just rearranged it a little bit. So, some of it is sheer experience that's happened to you, and I want to write this about what happened. Some of it is just I misread a word in the magazine and something I saw on a billboard or something somebody in the airport said. It's just, uh, there's a million different ways to, um, to get an idea. And sometimes you don't even write the original way you thought it was going to go. It goes completely somewhere else, but at least the idea came from somewhere.
0: Well, has the version that a singer did of one of your songs ever surprised you?
1: A lot of times, yeah. I mean, there's some artists that sing it exactly the way, just like the demo. They don't really they don't really stray far from the way you did it. And then there's some, Take a Back Road was one. I mean, it was just a simple little demo, but when we heard the record, we were like, wow, we, they took it somewhere else. Dirt on My Boots by John Party. If you can hear our, de- our demo sounds like a rap song. It sounds like a hip hop thing. How John heard through that and his producer, Bart Butler, how they heard through that, I don't know, but that's one of the best productions I ever heard. Cause our song really does sound like some late nineties hip hop thing and they turned it into complete country gold. So I, I love that when producers take a chance and and step outside the box. And then sometimes it's not needed. Sometimes the demo, you couldn't really put the demo out. Sometimes people try too hard to to change what's there. Like, like this is a hamburger, you know? It's like, there ain't no need to put a bunch of weird stuff on there. And then sometimes it's just a plain hot dog and they go, hey, this thing needs a lot of relish and it needs this and this. So I think it's just really, if if the demo's there, I don't think you need to change it much, but the demo is kind of squarely. I love it when a producer can take it and go somewhere else with it.
0: Interesting. Well, to kind of jump to your recordings, the records that you've made, <laughs> mm-hmm. there are songs that you wrote or co-wrote that you recorded yourself, but also you've recorded the work that other songwriters have written, like Somebody new. Yeah. That's a great song. Oh, Dean Dillon, yeah. Dean Dillon and Larry Bastian, right? Yeah. How do you go about, how did you, did you go about picking the work of other writers? What made you want to? When you're something
1: she when I heard somebody new, I was just like, this is, I mean, what, a, I mean, Dean just flipped, flipped the, the title. You know, he, it's like it had a certain meaning on the front of course and a totally different meaning at the end of the course. Somebody knew you'd found somebody new. KNEW versus NEW. And, um, it was just that's what I grew up on. I loved George Strait and I love what Dean always wrote. And I felt like, why didn't George Strait cut that? You know, it's <laughs> like I, I've got a chance. I've got a chance to cut a song that I think George Strait would kill. Cool. So, yeah, I'm gonna cut that. You know, I tried my best not to let money and publishing companies get in my way of of writing songs, but there's sometimes that the business got in the way of a great song. It still happens to this day. I think you know that this song's better than the one you wrote, but um my publishing company really needs me to have four songs on this record. I mean, there's a lot of business stuff that goes on that I think hurts the music sometimes, and you make a bad choice because of that. But I try not to let that happen too often.
0: Would you say usually you know right away if a song is going to work for you?
1: Well, yeah, personally, if I, I can put on a song one time and go, oh, yeah, that's for me. <laughs> or go. That's not from me. But but then you, but then you got people in your ear. You know you got your producer and you got your label and you got your manager and they're going, Hey, I think that song's a smash that I really didn't like the first time. And so I think it's good to have other ears with their opinions too. But at the end of the day, it's your record and you've got to live with uh, you know what you put on there. But I'm I'm not against you know listening to. A song two or three times, and going, yeah, you're right. I didn't, I didn't catch that the first time because, I mean, don't we all hear songs on the radio that we dismiss immediately, and then three months later, you're like, ah, oh, I can't get that song out of my head. That's my <laughs> favorite song. So, it it, it it works in all different ways.
0: You've written with some really, really great, great songwriters. Who comes to mind when I mention your co-writers, the different people you've worked with?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I, I'm not saying this and people are going to laugh, but um, my son is, is is fantastic. Like he blows my mind every time I write with him or when he just sends me a song and says, Dad, what do you think about this? I'm just like, how did you do that? Like you're like he was doing that at 19 years old when he wrote Beer with Jesus and sent me that. I was like, I, I can't write that at 40. He uh, he blows me away all his songs, even if they're. Light and, and they're not the most serious song in the world. They still just wrote the, the crap out of it. He's fantastic. I mean, he's an artist writer. He's not just a writer, but he's he's really good. Man, I could name twenty people that are just genius songwriters. Um, I mean, my crew. I guess I came up with Dallas Davidson, Dan Hazelton, Rodney Cross, Luke Laird, Hillary Lindsay, Josh Keer, Chris Tompkins, Craig Wiseman. They're everybody in this town is really good. You know, they all have a different flavor and you probably wouldn't write this song with this guy, vice versa, but, um, then Ashley Gorley. I mean, there's just, there's, there's a, there's a whole slew of people in town that just, and there's a bunch of new people coming up. I mean, Michael Hardy is having great success right now. Jameson Rogers is a great writer. Uh, Chase McGill, Josh Thompson. Or a bunch of new guys that just have old souls. You're like, man, y'all could have done this in the seventies. I mean, you would have been right with Willie back in the day. No doubt. It's really cool to see a young crop because most I feel like most kids today don't know. They've heard of Merle Haggard, but they don't know his stuff. They can, you know, they've heard of Willie, but they don't know what he wrote or what he sang. They don't know he wrote crazy, you know, but it's cool to see the young crop of, of songwriters come up who actually get it. In my opinion, that's kind of my goal test, my gold standard like, can you play me a Merle Haggard song? And they just whip one out right then. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> he's a good one. Yeah, You know, I mean, that doesn't mean that somebody that didn't grow up on country music is not a good writer, but, but I just love it when the new generation honors the old generation. And they grew up on that, and they, they, they made it a point to not only know, you know, hair metal bands and whatever was popular at the, at the time they were growing up, but they actually, they actually know you know, a Keith Whitley song.
0: Hmm. Well, this uh, question might be kind of a a tough one. With all these different cuts that you've had, and there have been some great recordings, who has really knocked you out with something that you wrote? Man, I I would say a pretty good bit. I'm trying to think of
1: just the. I mean, I think Blake singing the song I Lived It, I think he killed that. I think... uh, I think he really believed that song. I think he lived that song. And it's the only song I've ever had that was nominated for a Grammy. So something resonated with somebody. And we we wrote that song never thinking it would get recorded. We just wanted to write it for ourselves the way we grew up. And and Blake really loved it. And I think he sang it with emotion. Trying to think. I mean, God, they're all good. I'm just trying to think of one that's just really, really knocked me out. Shoot, I can't think. I'd have to look at the list and just... (laughs) See, but that, that I lived. It was 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 like I could just, like I said I I could tell Blake he wasn't he wasn't making that up. He he he'd been there.
0: <laughs> well, going back to Thomas Rhett, it's true there've been a lot of father son or mother and daughter, you know, different generational artists. But I think you all have a really unique relationship in music. You know, not not just yeah. to pass it on, but have him as like a creative partner. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, we in a weird way grew up together. I mean, I was twenty when he was born, hmm. and so it wasn't like you know I was thirty or thirty five year old parent. I'm, I'm nineteen or twenty year old father, and so uh, I mean, when I was thirty, he was ten. You know that. So we kind of uh, I made him listen to the classics. I mean, every day it's on the way to school. I'd be like, we're not listening to the radio today. Today, we're listening to Paul McCartney and Wings. And then tomorrow, we're listening to Merle Haggard. And then the next, and then the next day, we're listening to Aerosmith or whatever. And I just made him listen to what I thought were the the, the basic food groups. I'd listen, he'd listen to Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or Alan Jackson or whatever it would be, What Aretha Franklin. I would just be like, I tried to spoon feed my kids what I thought was best for them in their musical diet. And I never thought that they would, that he would turn out to be a songwriter or singer. I just wanted to do this in life. I just wanted to be like, Hey, these are the real gems. You have cotton candy over here and you got M&Ms over here and potato chips and that's cool, but this is the real food right here. And I think that him growing up that way and we kind of doing it together. Bonded us closer musically, you know, because a lot of times fathers and sons and mother and daughters they don't get along or they they couldn't work in the same field. But I just think because we made music a thing, it was a huge part of our life, made us closer musically, I think, than maybe normal. And I think that's why his music is so different. I think he can play, he can sing. I mean, he has a song out now called Country Again, which is country as you can get, and he has Crash and Burn, which is as pop and R and B as you can get. I mean, he literally has more unique music than most people out there. I mean, he goes from a stone-cold country song to a more hip-hop-sounding song to a more rock-sounding song to a more acoustic-sounding song. And I do think it's because of the way I made him listen to music as a kid.
0: That's true. He's definitely one of those diverse recording and performing artists.
1: Yeah, he can get on stage with anybody. He could be on stage with Justin Timberlake and knock it out of the park, and he could be on stage with Chris Stapleton and knock it out of the park. He just, he feels at home in all these places.
0: Hmm. Well, this is a a kind of a hypothetical question. If you could give advice to a young Rhett Akins, just starting out in life and in music, what would you say to that boy?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh. I guess I would tell them some of the things not to do more than, you know, I have, I've I've done a lot of the wrong things and, you know, on my path, I guess sometimes roadblocks were put there and I couldn't help it. But a lot of times I put my own roadblock in my path, you know, like don't do this and don't do that. Trusting God more. I mean, I've always been a Christian and always believed in God and, and trusted God, but I, but I also did it on my own a lot too. Like, You know, I was like, well, I think this is what I need to do, and God didn't tell me to do that, but I think this is what I need to do. And if I would have done it God's way, I probably wouldn't have been as big a mountain to climb, or I'd have gotten over it easier. I just think trusting, praying and trusting in God more is what I should have done a lot more in my life. Even though I had it in me, I didn't always follow what he said, and and still don't, you know, to some extent, but I feel like I'm getting, I guess I'm getting older you just realize that, hey, you know, when your parents told you not to play in the street, it wasn't because they were mean parents. It was because you weren't old enough to realize that you're going to get hit by a car. Yeah. And I think God, when God says, you know, you probably shouldn't do that. And I go, well, why? It's fun. Because you're going to get hit by a car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like, when we we at 30 years old, you still don't realize you're going to get hit by a car. By playing in the street, and I just think I, if I'd go back, I, I would, I would not worry about what my friends and people around me thought as much, and I would think more about what I should have done, you know. But it's hard to do. We're human, and we want to please other people, and we want to fit in, and that kind of stuff. And when you and when you don't do those things, you, you know, sometimes you're an outcast, and sometimes you're not in the cool club. And, but when it's all said and done, you wind up in a better spot. In the end, even though you had to suffer a little bit back in the day So, not to get all religious on you But I just probably should have trusted God Instead of my own, what I thought I should have done more
0: hmm. Well, I could say the same about myself, definitely And I know a lot of people listening are probably thinking Gosh, I see myself in that answer <laughs> Yeah,
1: exactly, yeah Well, i got a lot of scars <laughs> to... Uh, to prove that I thought I what the right road was the right road, but it wasn't. But um, it's an ongoing journey. For you know, as long as you're alive, it's an ongoing journey. You never master it. But
0: well, you've mentioned a couple of really, really exceptional people that you've gotten a chance to meet, like the late Merle Haggard. But I know you've also met Mick Jagger. Who mm-hmm. would you like to meet? Could be in music, could could be outside of music. Who would you like to meet that you haven't yet?
1: It would probably be musical. If not musical, it would be sport, I guess. But I'd like to meet Paul McCartney. I mean, to, in my opinion, there's only four four kings left, and that's Mick, Keith, Paul, Ringo, and Bob Dylan. <laughs> those are, the, to me, those are the, the last. And we just lost Charlie Watts, you know, last week, and... I got to meet Greg Allman, who's also one of my biggest heroes. But there's not many left of the, of the, of the, uh, the foundation. Willie, you know, I've got to hang out with Willie a few times. Willie's one of the last. Hank Jr., just getting up there, is is one of the last. But I guess Paul McCartney, I think I would love to, to meet Paul. I mean, he, uh, he only wrote the most recorded song of all time. <laughs> you know, yes, yesterday. That's right. Um, he he just uh, he just had it, man. He was just seemed so effortless. And I don't recall how many. I don't think that they took a lot of lessons as kids. It's like I don't think he just went to school and learned musical theory. I think he just like just woke up and was just good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I just like. I wish I could. I mean, he would just say. Woke up today, and I had this melody in my head, and it turned out to be Eleanor Rigby. I mean, it's just like, and they only wrote, like, I mean, we talked about how many songs I've written. When you look at how many songs John and Paul and Nick and Keith and Bob, they've only written, like, 300 songs, you know? Right. I think i wrote 300 songs in two years. I just, they just have something that I don't have, you know, and I, I would just like to be around it. Maybe some other... And that's why they are who they are because most people don't have that. You know, they wouldn't be who they were if everybody had it. So, um, I'd love to just talk to Paul about his approach to to songwriting. I'd like to talk to Bob Dylan about his approach to songwriting. Obviously, it's way different than what the Beatles did. I'd like to talk to Willie about it. So, I guess, uh, you know, I, I think the founders, the founders of all the genres that are still alive is who I would like to meet. And there's not many Definitely not many left. I would have loved to have met Muddy Waters or Robert Johnson. You know, I mean, how fascinating would it be to meet Robert Johnson? Oh, yeah. And what people don't realize is that Robert Johnson wasn't even popular when he was alive. Like, nobody knew who he was. Yeah. Until he was dead for 40 years. And then suddenly all these young teenage kids in England, Eric Clapton and Robert Plant and Mick and Keith, find this record. And it changes the whole world. You know, Americans didn't get it. We didn't get it. We're like, oh, I don't know who Robert Johnson is. <laughs> well, Eric Clapton knew who he was somehow, some way, you know. And it, uh, it's just so fascinating how you've got these people who grew up on cotton farms in the 1930s, and they, and they have nothing, and their music changed the entire world. You know, I'd be. It would just be so cool to go back then, back there, and and just look at them and go, "Buddy, you're going to change the world one day." They would laugh. Buddy orders would laugh. You could go back to 1940 and go, "You are going to change the world." He would laugh. But they did. Oh, Chuck yeah. Berry, all of them. I mean, they they changed the world. I mean, there's no music existing today that that, that would be around without them. You know, so. That'd be a fascinating conversation.
0: Fascinating, indeed. Absolutely, I sh- I share your reverence for all these people. You know the the little Richards, the you know, yeah. so, so many of them from here in 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 this state of Georgia. It is it's a reverence, you know. But I yeah, like Ray
1: Charles. I'm just reading. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Ray Charles. I'd like to talk to him. That would that would be so cool. I mean, this kid is blind, and he's got he's going nowhere. You know, if you look at him on paper, Ray Charles is not going to go anywhere. And he turns out to be the best. Yeah. You know, it's it's proof that, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter your color, it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter what country you come from. You can change the world.
0: Hmm. Well, what is the best thing about being Rhett Aikens? My
1: kids and my grandkids. Feels weird to say grandkids. I feel like I'm not a granddaddy, but I'm about to have my fourth. Yeah, that's it. I mean, what, that's, uh, forget music, forget all that. I mean, I have, uh, three children and about to have four grandchildren. I mean, that would, that would be, and I want them, I want them to have a great life and be more successful than I ever thought about. It doesn't have to be in music. I just want them to be successful in life. I don't care what they do. I think every parent's dream is that you're, kids and your grandkids go bigger and better than you did. And that doesn't mean being famous or or having awards or anything like that. It just means whatever you choose to do, do it and be great at it, better than I was at what I did. So that's my, that's the greatest thing about being me, I feel like.
0: Well, I want to invite everybody to go to com R-H-E-T-T-A-K-I-N-S dot com. And I have to thank one of the Sweetest guys in the world, a great songwriter and a huge friend of this show, Mr. Bruce Birch, for making this possible.
1: Oh yeah. Love Bruce. He's he was uh he was there from the beginning. I mean he was one of my first when I was didn't know what I was doing. Bruce, for whatever reason, wrote with me and and taught me so many things and uh just a great guy. And yeah, thank you, Bruce, for hooking us up.
0: We love you, Bruce. (laughs) Well, my last question, you know, there's a lot of different titles that you could put on Rhett Aikens. You could say songwriter, singer, you've worked as a recording artist, you continue to perform, outdoorsman, father, very young-looking grandfather. And you could go on and on. Who would you say, my last question, that... Rhett Aikens is at heart. Who are you at heart? What label would you put?
1: Historian. Yeah. Yeah. My true job, I should be a history teacher or work at a civil war battlefield or something. That's my, uh, true passion is, um, I mean, other than music, obviously, but all I do is read. I read, 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 read. It could be the Peloponnesian war. It could be a biography on anybody, Einstein. I mean, right now I'm reading The Decline of the Roman Empire. I'm reading... I mean, I read this all at one time. I'm, I am have like seven books on my coffee table that I just read a page or two and then grab another one. Journals of Lewis and Clark, the Bible. I'm reading World War II. Right now, I read... Uh, I read some of Grimm's fairy tales last night. A little bit of Thomas Hardy. I read a couple of chapters of Jude the Obscure this
0: week.
1: I don't read anything new. If it, if, it, if it was written today, I ain't reading it. If it was written thirty years ago, I ain't reading it. <laughs> <laughs> if it was written before nineteen hundred, I'll you know I'm reading it. But if it was written two thousand years ago, I'm definitely reading it. You know, just biographies on emperors and Napoleon. It doesn't matter. If it's history and biography is what I do, I would say at least three to four hours a day. Hmm. Uh, I'm up at one o'clock in the morning reading Don Quixote. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a historian, and I mean that not just in books, but in life. Like I've named all these people in music. You know, so I'm, a, I'm a sports historian, a music historian, uh, 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 war a world history. that's just my main, that's my thing, is reading.
0: Very interesting. Well, thank you for this very interesting interview. You're a, a great interview subject.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: I hope we get a chance to talk again sometime.
1: Yes, sir. I'd love to do that.
0: <laughs> All right, sir. Well, you have a great evening. And congratulations on the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. That's, that's such a cool thing.
1: Yeah, I know, man. Thank you. It's unbelievable. I appreciate
0: it. You got it. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. God bless. ba 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 da beep ba boop dot boop da beep ba da leep. But the